Welcome to Michael Cast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. And we're joined by one of our Slug Club supporters on Patreon today, Michelle. Hey, Michelle, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. It's great to have you, and it is your birthday. The timing worked out beautifully. We didn't know it was your birthday, so happy birthday. Thank you. And all your uh, mini Harry Potter Funkos are behind you. Everyone's here to celebrate my birthday today. Aww, (laughs) now I'm picturing them all going, happy birthday! (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're excited to do this with you on your birthday. It's You're probably our first listener who's been on the show on their birthday. And again, complete coincidence. So I'm very happy to hear that. Excellent present from us, if I do say so myself. Yes, good job. Very good job. I'll tell my husband you've been you he's been bumped from the top. Like this wow. is way better. <laughs> uh just make sure your husband doesn't come for us. Oh no, he he won't. No. Well, Andrew, now this means we have to one up this next year for Michelle. Oh, okay. Yes. So next year will be my 50th birthday. Ooh. So oh. yes. Well, so we'll we'll have you on and take you out to dinner. Oh, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get any further, though, let's get your fandom ID, Michelle. Okay. My favorite book is Half-Blood Prince. Um, Specifically, my favorite chapter is The Other Minister, which I heard you guys talking about a couple episodes ago, so that made me very happy. My favorite movie is Sorcerer's Stone. My Hogwarts house is Gryffindor. My Ilvermorny house is Horned Serpent, I guess. I just figured that out yesterday because I had to. Um, My Patronus (laughs) is a hummingbird. And you wanted to call out your favorite chapter because that's not just your favorite chapter in Half-Blood Prince. It's your favorite chapter in any book, right? In all of the books, yes. That chapter, it just is so absurdly funny. It cracks me up every time. All I can picture is that Muggle Prime Minister sitting in his office with this little toady guy in a frame kind of moving sometimes. And this crazy other minister from this other world that supposedly is messing up his world coming through the chimney. It's just so absurdly funny. It cracks me up every time. So before we get to our two chapters today, a little bit of news. First of all, everybody listening on Monday or Tuesday in the United States, make sure you go and vote. It's very important. Yeah, it's the midterms. It's not a presidential election, but it's still very important for you to go out and vote. So please take a moment to do that. Take MuggleCast with you to your local polling place. Yeah, listen while you're in line. Go vote. Please. (laughs) Choo-choo. Go to IWillVote.com to find your local polling place. Now to some Harry Potter news. Harry Potter's new, if I may borrow a word from John Oliver, business daddy, (laughs) David Zaslav at Warner Brothers Discovery, wants more Harry Potter movies. He made these comments on an investor call a couple days ago. And while this isn't a surprise, his wording is interesting. And I'll read a quote. So this merger has just been completed and he's looking to the future. We, we've we heard before there's been lots of cut projects from Warner Brothers. They're trying to save a lot of money now. And David said, we're going to focus on franchises. We haven't had a Superman movie in 13 years. We haven't done a Harry Potter in 15 years. The DC movies and the Harry Potter movies provided a lot of the profits for Warner Brothers over the past 25 years. So first of all, his math is wrong. It hasn't been 15 years since Harry Potter. It's only been like 11, I think. And if you if you count the Justice League and Batman versus Superman films as Superman films, that was only been five years, actually. So setting that aside. He's rounding up. <laughs> yeah. If I'm being generous, here I go being generous again. <laughs> Maybe he's he he meant to say, like, by the time we get another one of these movies out, it'll have been 15 years. It'll have been 13 years. But anyway... 
what's interesting about this comment is that he seems to be setting aside Fantastic Beasts, and he's specifically saying he wants more Harry Potter movies, which is pretty significant to hear from him. And The Hollywood Reporter also noted, and I'm quoting now, it's noteworthy that Zaslav dangled the possibility of more Potter at an investor's meeting with the venue, meaning the call, suggesting it was more than just wishful thinking. And what they mean is you don't just bring this up in front of investors unless you're very serious about it, because now the investors are expecting more Harry Potter. And if you don't give them more Harry Potter, they're going to punish you by getting rid of their stock. So it is a pretty big deal that he did say more Harry Potter movies. What do we think that means, though? I think it means what it sounds like. He wants more Harry Potter movies. But it's just shocking the lack of sort of self-reflection and looking at the existing franchise set in the Wizarding World of Fantastic Beasts. I don't think there's a way to move forward without having to deal with, at the very least, putting that series to bed publicly and making the kind of uncomfortable announcements of, hey, we're moving forward, whether that's with an alternative proposed franchise at the same time or not. It's it's uncomfortable to me that they're just taking this property that didn't do as successfully as Harry Potter had. And the reasons why we've all speculated about, and I think it's pretty evident, actually, that they wouldn't let it live on its own. And he's just kind of discounting it, discrediting it, and is going to move back to, I guess, what, readapting the same books that made the first movies so popular? Well, that's my question. Yeah. I I think the obvious choice is Cursed Child, but I wouldn't want to see that adapted as a movie because then it it lends more credence to that all being canon, and I don't want that being canon. (laughs) That works best as a play. Yeah, it's so messy. I wonder if this was a test balloon because they know that the diehard Harry Potter fans are going to pick up on this and start chattering about it. So I wonder if they were doing this to see, you know, what's going to be the fandom reaction of us potentially shelving Fantastic Beasts and going back to basics and looking at the core Harry Potter story of the Wizarding World. Well, for me, part of it is what are they going to do about the casting? Because I don't know that you're going to get Dan, Emma, or Rupert to come back to play these roles. And you're only, what, just a little over 10 years removed from, or a little under 10 years removed, whatever it is, uh, from the last movie. It hasn't been that long where you can really start to recast these roles. And that there was something very iconic and special about the the Harry Potter films in that, you know, really the only change we got throughout was from... Richard Harris to Michael Gambon because unfortunately Richard Harris passed away. Now we're in a situation where, you know, we've lost Alan Rickman, we've lost Robbie Coltrane, we've lost some iconic actors that were a part of this series that if you were looking to kind of continue on with Harry's story, at least, you know, Hagrid was still around. You know, I'm just worried about how you build upon this, you know, and whatever this new iteration is. Like if you're gonna go and and continue Harry's story. It, it it might be tough initially. I I don't know how well it would work. the 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 yeah. thing I think could work is Fantastic Beasts story aside. Jude Law has been a fantastic Dumbledore. There could be opportunity to continue to tell Dumbledore's story up until the Harry Potter series. So maybe that's a direction they go in. Or yeah. just TV show reboot. <laughs> Start from the beginning. 
I think that's acceptable, but he's yeah. talking about movies. It seems like he says the- movie. Yeah, but 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 if but if they do ever want to readapt the original books, it should be in television format because that will have that's the medium these days. That's the medium that's going to do the books the most justice. And if they're not caring about doing the books justice, then what are they doing here? Yeah, but a, a lot of these Marvel movies, right? The success has been the fact that they've been able to keep, for the most part, consistency with the actors and the characters, these actors went through how many years of filming most of them? And do, are they really going to want to come back? Maybe some of them do, but are they really going to want to come back and do kind of these spin-off movies? I just, I don't know. And I think it's hard right now to recast a lot of these roles because they were played by, in some cases, iconic actors and done so, so well, especially by the young child actors at the time. I don't see the trio coming back. They've no. at least at, at least Dan and Emma have worked very hard to kind of shed them. They're very proud of Harry Potter, of course, but they don't want themselves to be tightly associated with Harry Potter. They want to be something other than Harry Potter and Hermione Granger. So to go back to that would be kind of undoing what they've worked so hard to shed themselves of over the past 10 years. And they're still relatively young. So if they went back to Harry Potter, they'd have to spend another 20 years shedding the direct comparisons. I don't know the the best word here, but they- I mean, how long, Eric, you might know this, but how long did it take for Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford to come back to the Star Wars franchise? It, It was decades. It was like 30 years. Yeah, more or less. And uh, there was a lot of money involved, but that was a long time. And Harrison Ford, for instance, like never stopped acting. You know, he had a lot of other projects that were all very interesting. The only way I can see this working is if they start adapting chapters of the book without Harry and the trio in it. So like the other minister movie would happen. I was just going to ask Michelle about that. Michelle, (laughs) that would be that would be cool, right? Just like. 30 minutes of the various contractors being summoned to Downing Street <laughs> to try and get the uh, frog guy off the wall. You can make it a comedy. It would be great. That's yeah. a box office smash. Send that to <laughs> David Zaslav. Yeah, no, I th- I think he's barking up the wrong tree right now. I think he's going to realize he can't just do a straight reboot. This guy has probably never read a Harry Potter book. I'd be surprised if he even saw the Harry Potter movies. He doesn't wow. know what he's talking about. No, seriously. I mean, these execs don't. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was right. reported over the summer that he was going to go meet with J.K. Rowling, remember? Well, so could he be informed from that discussion? Is that why he is confident to say more Harry Potter mm-hmm. movies because of whatever conversation he had? That's a good point. That's a good point. I'm hoping... That, like you said, he probably has never read a Harry Potter book. So he probably sees Fantastic Beasts as one of those Harry Potter movies. So maybe, hopefully, what he's saying is that he either wants to do more Fantastic Beasts movies and finish that up. Or maybe they'll pull out something else, make Quidditch or something else in the series, hopefully. Because he probably doesn't know the difference between Harry Potter and the other movies. He probably just calls them all Harry Potter. Probably. That's a good point. I I think what happened is Zaslav saw how jacked Dan Radcliffe is now and is like, I need to do like a live action hero movie with with this guy as Harry Potter. Micah messaged us in our Slack yesterday morning. I just saw Dan Radcliffe in an interview. He's looking jacked. What what Micah said was even better than that. He said he must lift with the illustrated editions of the Harry Potter books because he's jacked. Yeah, I think we're all thirsting over Dan on this panel. 
Well, I guess we'll see what happens. Variety also said that there's no um, Harry Potter movie in active development, which, okay, yeah, so maybe it's not being written. I think they're just trying to figure out what the heck they're going to do, because we know they want to do something. But the big question is, what are they going to do and what's going to do better than Fantastic Beasts? Just when do we hold the memorial service for the Fantastic Beasts series? Like... <laughs> as soon as they announce this next whatever, and it's not Fantastic Beasts. Yeah, the... <laughs> just you can't leave socks, right, Andrew? You can't leave socks. Yes. Sorry, that was a that was a bad reference to the article you shared. <laughs> I just need you to give context, Micah. That's yes. all so I'm asking for. <laughs> there was a New York Times article that Andrew shared with us where apparently Dobby's gravesite um, over in the UK gets visited quite frequently. Um, the issue, however, is that people continuously leave socks there. Um, and so um, that's seemingly become a problem. It's polluting the beach. Yeah. I never would have thought to do that. Now I kind of want to go into that, but I'm not going to now that they've asked us to stop. I wonder if you can find like a biodegradable sock that you could leave, you know, then it's not hurting the environment. Bamboo socks. We'll talk about that in the future bonus muggle cast because that story is amazing. Watch this space. We'll be watching too. All right. Well, let's jump into chapter by chapter now, Micah. Yeah, let's jump into chapter by chapter. Two really fun chapters this week, uh, The Forbidden Forest and Through the Trap Door. But as we always do, we're going to start with our seven word summary for The Forbidden Forest. And Laura, I'm giving you the honors this week to start us off. I don't know if y'all are going to like this, but this is for the centaurs. Mars. Might. Tell. Of. Future <sighs> conflicts forthcoming. This might be one of the the best um, seven word summaries we've done so far. You think? Yeah. Well, <laughs> and kudos to Michelle there too. The the of really, yeah. I think sa- that saved us big time. That saved the direction of the sentence. <laughs> Thank you. I couldn't tell from your body language if you were like, oh, <laughs> no, 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 like. It- we needed we needed some kind of direction there and you provided it. So thank you. So we'll get to the forest itself in just a little bit. But uh, one of the discussion points I wanted to raise in this chapter is Harry, more or less, I know there's others involved, but he cost Gryffindor 150 points. And this basically takes them as close to zero as they've been probably since the start of the year. And I was wondering, as I read through this chapter, did we ever have similar situations growing up where we did something that ended up either getting other people, whether they were friends or classmates in trouble, or somehow negatively impacting other people? I, you know, I'm just, I was trying to remember back myself, and I'm sure that I, I did things where I was the one at fault, but other people suffered as a result of it. And you just feel terrible, and you see that. Uh, impact on Harry really throughout the the beginning part of this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely had cases like that when I was a kid. And of course, in retrospect, it's not as big of a deal as it felt like at the time. But, you know, I think when you're a kid, when you're an adolescent, you're going through these really awkward prepubescent years, it can feel like it's everything in the moment. So that's the reality that Harry's experiencing here. I definitely inadvertently um, got, you know, me and a few of my friends in trouble at school one time, um, because we were somewhere that we weren't supposed to be. And it was my idea. (laughs) So I can relate. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know uh, our class, maybe not me specifically, but our class was the last class to get to go to camp um, for a weekend because just the whole class was so not well behaved. It was a fifth grade kind of week away at camp type thing, field trip, various. I don't really remember the, too much of the details, but yeah, we didn't get to do that in the future. And that camp was a lot of fun. That was possibly the most fun I've had at a school related event. And uh, we can't have nice things because we were the graduating class of, well, I won't even say the year, but uh, (laughs) it was bad. It definitely is a lesson in responsibility, though, right? Like your actions will directly and indirectly impact those around you. And I think McGonagall definitely shows through her teaching style here and and how she is going to discipline her own students. we've, We've seen it in a couple of the other chapters early on in Sorcerer's Stone, but I think this really hits home uh, for for us in terms of just how strict she can be. Yeah, I mean, he's a social pariah, and there are definitely connections to be made between this chapter and the one sort of following the Justin Finch-Fletchley incident in the next book, where all the Hufflepuffs turn on Harry. And this is his own people. This is the Gryffindors. And like, if the chapter weren't hurtling towards the end, you know, after exams and getting us to the through the trapdoor, um, I it probably would have I made would have made the connection earlier. But just having this situation where your own Quidditch team that you're offering to resign from, but then, you know, Wood is like, but then how will we get points? No, you need to fix this. But his entire Quidditch team won't even talk to him like during practices as a result of this. Like they're all giving him the cold shoulder. It it's real intense. Definitely. And it's it's actually a bit uh, reminiscent, too, of Goblet of Fire, where the whole school basically turns against him. Yeah. And doesn't like the fact that he's been selected uh, over Cedric. But possibly, uh, you know, the one it impacts the most, at least for us from a reader standpoint, uh, is Neville, because uh, Neville definitely feels so betrayed uh, when McGonagall hypothesizes why they were all out and about in that Harry actually lied to Neville. Uh, So I was wondering what we all thought of this. And then do we think this sets him up to stand up to Harry, Ron, and Hermione a little bit uh, later on in the next chapter? Absolutely. I mean, he he was trying to help Harry, Ron, and Hermione in this chapter. And the narrative that he's given is that he's being punished for trying to help his friends, when in reality, they were, you know, according to McGonagall, trying to throw another student under the bus, which causes Neville to get thrown under the bus as well. So yeah, I think I think he's ready to stand up to them, especially after being repeatedly told, usually by Ron, I think, throughout the book, that he's got to stand up for his, himself and he can't lay down and take it. So he's finally deciding to step up to the plate. The trio just didn't mean that they wanted him to stand up to them, but we'll get to that in a bit. And the whole thing, it's always a misunderstanding, right? It's always you get in trouble for something, but it's really not what you were actually doing. And then everybody misunderstands everything. That's what happened in the Goblet of Fire. And that's what happened here. So other than maybe Draco, who was out causing mischief, um, Neville's in trouble because he was trying to help. So he got misunderstood. And then Harry and the trio, they're trying to help Hagrid. 11-year-olds are trying to help get this dragon off to, <laughs> to Romania. And it's all, they're all in trouble for something that was just a big, big, big misunderstanding. And I think that definitely helps Neville to go, hey, wait a second, I was doing something good here and I'm getting in trouble for it. And then gives him the strength to stand up to them later. 
Right. And it's always bothered me he gets just 10 points from Dumbledore for doing that. I know it was like the 10 points that Gryffindor needed, but <laughs> to me, it's worth more than than even what the trio did down in, uh, you know, yeah, listen, any more points, a, sing- a single more more point would have been blatant favoritism on Dumbledore's part. He toes that line real well. I think it is actually kind of nice that it is smaller because it's like just enough to push them over the line. So right. I actually kind of think it has more impact that way, being smaller. I just want more points for Neville. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I get it. He deserves more. I get it. This did have me thinking, though, what if... Would it have been that bad to tell McGonagall the truth? Because it's not really their fault that they got into the Norbert situation. Hagrid was being a a child. This is all Hagrid's fault. And if they just told McGonagall that, I think maybe she would have been still at least a little frustrated, but not as frustrated as she was. I think then McGonagall would have been likely to find out that they know about the stone earlier than she does. Because as you unravel this tale of, oh, yeah, Hagrid went and was drinking with a stranger who gave him this dragon egg and we were just trying to help him, you know, illegally smuggle this dragon off the Hogwarts grounds. Like one, it implicates Hagrid in a way that could potentially be dangerous for his employment. Um, We know that he already at this point in time is still a pariah because of what it is. Believe that he did when he was at Hogwarts. Um, but also, McGonagall's not stupid. And she, if Harry is able to connect the dots between, wait, this person showed up, randomly had this thing that you wanted, got you drunk, gave it to you, what did you tell him? There's no way McGonagall doesn't make that connection. So I think it would just speed up that particular part of the story which i don't know if it's a bad thing necessarily yeah that does raise an interesting question though is is hagrid ever reprimanded for this because he really (laughs) provides the opportunity for for quirrell to go after the stone right Uh, it all worked out in the end though no no worries i think that's what it comes down to (laughs) if things got got worse no this was a a young posh dumbledore yes I don't that's know where Eric, that came. just as an observer at Hogwarts. So it all worked out fine. That's yeah. That's it. That's it. That's it. It's Eric is a juror. I uh, know <laughs> he doesn't need to be prosecuted. It all worked out fine. Yeah, retroactively punished. It's fine. I think that we really just have to follow McGonagall's line about there is no excuse. Nothing allows a student to be out of bed, um, especially because it's uh, dangerous. So it, it would have done everything that Laura said in terms of you know really drawing attention to Hagrid and some of the security uh, errors that are happening right now. But I don't think it would have gotten him out of a detention, unfortunately. Even if they're saving lives up there on the astronomy tower, they're up, you know, out of bed. And she would have said, like, couldn't wait to the morning. I mean, she knows Charlie Weasley, too. She knows this. He was she was his head of house, too, like. She would have just connected it all and I think still would have punished them. Yeah. Being like, you still should have known better. You shouldn't have put yourself in that position to begin with. That grown man's problems are his. (laughs) (laughs) I'll deal with him separately. I will accuse. Oh, I can see her taking points from Hagrid. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) From Hagrid. (laughs) Which he was a former Gryffindor, right? So Ten beasts from Hagrid. Yeah. Ten pumpkins. Oh, my God. Uh, I will accuse... uh, McGonagall of being a little short uh, sighted, though, 
this comes into our Quizich question from last week, but I'll actually reveal the answer now just as a talking point. Ooh. When McGonagall gives them uh, the detentions, she says she's never heard of such a thing before. The thing to which she's referring is four students out of bed. <laughs> and I'm thinking... I'm calling BS on that. Yeah. yeah. In your own house... There were four students who were very well known for being out of bed just 20 years ago in the Marauders. <laughs> yeah. So, one of them was Harry's dad, BT Dubs. <laughs> one of them was Harry's dad. Exactly. So she's like, oh, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, Mr. Potter. Something. Something. That's my awful McGonagall. Um, but really just a funny kind of point. She's saying, I've never heard of such a thing before as kind of like a, to make them feel bad about it. It's not necessarily true. Yes. Students were out of bed all the time, but I think she does need to impress upon these impressionable first years, the sheer danger that really does exist as a result of, I think, the stone being at the school. I agree with that. And I think in the moment when you're very frustrated, you just say... You make grand statements like that. I've never yeah. seen students out of bed. Just like, reading it, I did a double take, though. You've never you've never heard of four students out of bed. <laughs> She's the one who in book three is like, oh, never seen anything like them, James and Sirius. To, to Andrew's point, though, I, I think it's more to impress upon the students the severity of what they've done. I don't I don't think she's really telling the truth here um, that she's yeah. never seen four students out of bed before. Well, Eric, I might actually uh, borrow your impersonation skills uh, coming up here. So the second thing we want to talk about is detention that the students end up serving. And right off the bat, let's just say say what it is. It is a security nightmare. Starting to sound like a security nightmare. Security nightmare. Filch references the old punishments as they're walking out uh, to meet Hagrid. And I'm wondering, Eric, can you do a, a Filch oh, impersonation God. for us here uh, in your best David Bradley? Yeah, I do voices now. Okay, great. Um, I actually do. I'm really happy with my David Bradley. Let me see if I can get into it. Hang, hanging by your wrists from the ceiling for a few days. Now, I've, God, I'll miss the screaming. Oh, I've, got, <laughs> I've still got the check. You're going into the forest now, lads. Ah, it's not like the old punishments. Hanging by your wrists from the ceiling for a few days, I've still got the chains. I keep them oiled in my office. That's as good as it's going to get. Thank you. No, that was that good. Was good. That was good. That was good. Thank you. Do we think that Filch is just trying to scare them a bit here with this? <laughs> or or <laughs> if he's not, how long ago were these punishments implemented? And, and were they a holdover from a previous caretaker? I think it's a mix of both things. I think he enjoys spooking the students and... Yeah, I think at some point this used to be a thing at Hogwarts, but I'm talking like I'm thinking like hundreds of years ago. Yeah, yeah. This wasn't something that was discontinued while he was there. It's just that he now is in possession of the chains they used to use. I don't know what to think about this because I I don't I mean, I, I hate to be able to picture Phil to that horrible that he would really chain kids up in his office. I don't know, but maybe. He does seem to really like punishments and maybe it's this all of those chains are what he uses for like his office decor. Like that's just his office decor <laughs> choice is uh, oiled chains and old medieval punishing methods. I don't know. I just can't believe that he's that awful that he would, that they actually gave him the chance if he would, but then Umbridge does what she does with her magic quill. So 
maybe there are people in the wizarding world that are like that. Yeah. Also, since Filch can't do magic, he can't punish anybody with magic. So this is probably the only thing he has any real concept of being able to do. I also think Filch talks a big game. We see this throughout all the books. Um, He's really not much of an obstacle for anyone. um, And he's bitter about it, I think. So it causes some of these uh, more nefarious statements to come out. But I don't think he would actually do it. And even if he wanted to, I don't think Dumbledore would let him. But the fact that I have to think twice about that just says all we need to know about Dumbledore. It's a good call out. Keep an eye on the inbox. People are going to start emailing being like, you're being too hard on Dumbledore. Filch <laughs> is definitely a bit of a masochist. He's, he's got something going on there. Maybe we can explore that in another uh, episode. So chains aside, <laughs> sadist, I'm sorry, Chloe. But uh, yeah, putting the chains aside for just a minute here. Uh, detention is one thing. Uh, doing lines, as, as Malfoy mentions. But I'm wondering, how is this an acceptable form of punishment? Who signed off on this? You're sending kids with no defensive magical experience into a dangerous place in the middle of the night, filled with creatures who could easily harm or kill them. Their main protector is a half giant, which great. Size is great. Strength is great. (laughs) But he has questionable decision making. We know this. He would probably try tickling one of the creatures before deeming them dangerous uh, and has questionable magical abilities himself, right? So this does not seem very smart to me if we're looking at it from an adult perspective here. Yeah. Hold on, I'm trying to come up with a defense right now for Dumbledore. Maybe Dumbledore is watching through a crystal ball. (laughs) This is a really tough one for me to defend. I want to defend Dumbledore, but... To borrow McGonagall's words, I've never seen anything like this. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and knowing what the threat really is, uh, knowing what their job really is, detention in the forest, okay, yes, all the points that have been made are correct. But not only that, Hagrid is out of his depth here, self-admittedly. Because he has never seen a dead unicorn before last week when something has killed a unicorn. Presumably, like, the unkillable, the thing you would never, ever want to kill for many reasons, has been killed. Like, this is not first-year students' uh, jobs to come in with you. It's not even an adequate detention because it's so unsafe that, you know, if it were literally anything else, feeding the Thestrals, okay, unpleasant, but you're going to go in there it's going to be relatively safe, low, you know, low danger, um, apart from there being the forest itself. Like Hagrid says, if you're with me, nothing's going to hurt you. Well, that changes when you come up against something is killing unicorns in the forest, which doesn't regularly happen. So because Hagrid is out of his depth, this makes it even worse that he's choosing or somebody has chosen to send them in here because the only thing at the end of this you know, lane in the forest is Voldemort himself. And once it becomes very clear that this is Voldemort, um, who's after the stone or whatever, but he's just right in the forest, everyone should be on high alert. They should lock the school down like they do in Deathly Hallows because Voldemort is clearly right there. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. that's what's a sticking point for me because I'm like, okay, you've got the elixir of life stored in the school and there's something in the forest killing unicorns why would you kill a unicorn to live longer? Hmm. I wonder who it is. 
<laughs> well, yeah, and and surely Hagrid reported the first unicorn killed. Like every teacher should be on high alert, and Dumbledore most of all. It's essentially to not lock up the school is a huge cover up. It's basically like there's there's an active conspiracy happening right now at the school, even before Harry walks into the forest. And Mella brings up a good point in the Discord saying, especially because they say at the beginning of the year that no one is allowed in the forest and then they use it as a punishment. Huh. <laughs> Maybe Dumbledore's thinking like, okay, the centaurs will protect them if they get in like serious danger. Friends will come in clutch or something. I just, I want to believe that Dumbledore doesn't think they'd actually be in danger in the forest. Well, and I know that doesn't there, sound. There's, there's long been a theory too that Dumbledore is in fact in the forest too, and perhaps even under the invisibility cloak. Though we know he doesn't need it to turn invisible, he is in possession of it uh, during this time. So, you know, when they're talking about hearing like the rustling of the leaves with the footsteps, um, a lot of things that I've read have have kind of thought that maybe that was Dumbledore uh, at different times, as opposed to it being Voldemort, you know, the entire time. Oh, that's a fun theory. There's your defense of Dumbledore. <laughs> well, and yes, but here's the next Harry Potter movie for David Zaslav. We can, it's, it's Harry Potter again, but all from Dumbledore's perspective. Oh. And we actually see what he's been up to with Jude Law. Thank you very much. I just tied it all together. They can call it uh, Midnight Lily's Son. (laughs) (laughs) Midnight Lily's. I love it. Midnight Sun, Twilight reference. Well done. Um, But Hagrid does say there's nothing that lives in the forest that'll hurt you if you're with me or Fang. And this got me thinking, cursed child. We learn that the trolley lady actually keeps an eye on students and make sure they don't uh, try to leave the Hogwarts Express. Maybe... And, and, you know, the trolley lady turns into this, like, monster when they do. Maybe Fang has some superpowers like this. Maybe. Like, if, if they're in actual danger, Fang grows a second or third head or grows four times larger or, I don't know, just, like, starts to fly or something. <laughs> maybe Maybe he's got superpowers we don't know about. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because he says that. And then when Malfoy says, well, I want Fang... He's like, yeah, but I warn you, he's a coward. (laughs) And it's like, so wait, he does offer some protection. I do think it's interesting that that he says, you know, there's nothing in the forest that'll hurt you as long as you're with me. And then when Malfoy and Neville get in trouble, he's like, you guys wait here. (laughs) I'm going to go help them. (laughs) Oh, and he directly splits them up. (laughs) Half of them are not with Hagrid at any time. Right. (laughs) I actually love that Hogwarts is a security nightmare. I think that that makes Hogwarts just much more fun. And I love that the kids all get to go out and do these great adventures and have opportunities to get in trouble and use their magic. And also Hogwarts has the ability to take care of a higher level of problems. Like you've got Madame Pomfrey who won't say a word if Ron comes in with obviously being bitten by a dragon. She's just like, yeah, I'll take care of that. Yeah, I'll fix it. I mean, they have the ability to fix anything that goes wrong. It goes along with Hagrid's being a security nightmare. And I don't think that Hagrid, poor Hagrid, I don't think he really thought anybody was going to get hurt as long as he they were in there with him. But I have a hard time kind of wrapping my head around them. But there's something new in the forest. And I don't know what it is, but I'm sure it's going to be fine. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that, Michelle. <laughs> Michelle is a parent. Uh, and she says, I like 
that my student is going to be in trouble uh, concerning situations. This, I just feel like I was watching you as a witch, Michelle, talk about why you don't mind Hogwarts being a security nightmare. That was a powerful moment. I'll tell you what, I'm in schools a lot and those schools, none of those schools are super safe. I mean, they're trying, they're doing their best, but they're not super safe. Uh, okay, you know? I'm they're not, not going to take my children <laughs> They're not super safe. Day. The security, you know, the security everywhere, it seems good, but it's not great. <laughs> so yeah. just the idea that we have that everybody, just everybody's safe all the time isn't, I mean, we're, we're not, and you never know what's going to happen. Well, that's, that's true. true. That's true. Yeah. Safety is an illusion. It's like the TSA at, at the airport. It's, yeah. it's an illusion. It's a show. Yeah, if they, well, if they have different rules between going through the x-rays, whether you do or don't take your shoes off for different people, I don't care if you paid for TSA pre-check, which I have, by the way, now, um, and it's great. But the differing rules means it's not a blanket, like solid state of security for everybody. And so it, it's only as secure as the weakest link. And I wonder, too, I don't I've never been in a residential school, like I've never gone to a residential school, like a boarding school in England, but they must have some free reign on the campus. And even if they're told, don't go to this one spot, they're going to go to this one spot. Of course. So at least they had Hagrid with them this time and centaurs to protect them. That's true. I actually think, Michelle, you bring up a great point. I think it's easy for us as muggles, you know, as outsiders to this world to look at this magical school and highlight all of the security nightmares. And I think most of the time we're doing it in jest, but it is really important to remember that there, Harry Potter as a series is very grounded. There are a lot of parallels to the real world. So this could even be a commentary on the safety of muggle schools, because to your point, Michelle, a lot of that safety is an illusion. Really, really great points, for sure. Yeah. Anything else we want to hit on in terms of them splitting up? I think we all agree that it's probably not the best decision. Uh, for two students to be going off with a dog. And then, um, you know, initially Harry and Hermione are at least protected with Hagrid being around. But as was mentioned, Hagrid runs off to try and deal with Neville and Draco, who played a trick on Neville. Uh, So that leaves Hermione and Harry vulnerable for a period of time. And then, of course, Harry ends up being paired with Draco and the whole mess that ensues after that. But um, I just think, you know, this could have been totally avoided if if they just were uh, sat down to do some lines on the chalkboard like Bart Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> but then they never would have met centaurs and seen a unicorn. That's true. Ah, uh, yes. And we would have never met centaurs. That actually leads nicely into centaurs. Maybe we should talk about them now. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about them. And And Hagrid seems to have a really great relationship, uh, at least with some of them. I really enjoyed this section, uh, reading it back after, you know, knowing the complete Harry Potter story, because it it's clear that they're convinced that Voldemort is going to kill Harry through their own prophecy. But you also wonder if they know about the Trelawney prophecy. I suppose they do, but they're pretty confident in their own star reading. Yeah, And it also got me thinking about how they're talking about this prediction in the very forest where Harry will later go to die. Wow. In Deathly Oh, Hallows. that's a beautiful connecting the threads moment. I love that. Thank you for that. 
You're oh, welcome. Cool. I, I did read that on the internet. I, I didn't come up oh. with that myself, but <laughs> but it is beautiful nonetheless. That so <laughs> explains uh, Bane and Ronan's behavior in this chapter in a way I didn't think had an explanation. Like the the stars tell them Mars being the god of war, by the way. Yeah. Um, you know, the planet being bright means war coming. Voldemort's going to kill Harry in this forest. Well, he does kill Harry in this yeah. forest. And they're not going to interfere because they know that Harry is about to die, but they think it's tonight and it's not like, and friends is like, look, they, you know, my fellows are wrong. They've been, they've been reading the stars wrong before. Um, thank God for friends, but it's really cool to think that centers are wrong, but they're not very wrong. Yeah. Mars is bright tonight, man. Mars is bright tonight. Mars, man. That's that's how I read that line too. I was like, hmm, I wonder what really? I wonder what they're doing out there in the forest. Um <laughs> but anyway, I think it's also really interesting because this and then also a line that we get from Hermione a little bit later kind of sets up the conflict between centaurs and wizards in their views on divination. And I thought it was interesting to see that the centaurs, I feel like, are looking at things on a macro level. So when you're thinking of being foretold all the events that are to come in in the scope of the universe, when you think about it at that cosmic level, the death of, you know, one person probably does seem really uh, minimal to be honest. And they're probably thinking, listen, in the grand scheme of the world and everything that is to come, this one person dying like that, that is just the universe foretelling what is to come. And there's nothing that we can do about it. We can't interfere with it because it's not our job to change destiny. Whereas people, I think, are very much the opposite. We love (laughs) interfering and we love trying to change outcomes and destinies and things like that. So it's just interesting to see how wizards, I think, are looking at, you know, divination and, and, you know, fortune telling, if you want to call it that, on more of the micro level of what can we do to impact the here and now. And the centaurs are very much like, it's the cosmos, man. It's bigger than anything we could ever envision or try to understand. So we can see what's going to happen, but we just have no, um, you know, semblance of control over it and we shouldn't try. Right. And, and to that point, like as a human, like my perspective was when I read that always the innocent are the first victims, Mm-hmm. I was kind of looking at it on that micro level and saying, oh, Cedric, right? He's really the first of the innocent that we see. But actually, Laura, you made a really great point here. There's there's a lot of innocents who you know, could be considered the first here that really like set off the chain reactions that we see develop into the larger story. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think back to the beginning of, you know, Harry's story, it's Lily and James, it's Sirius, who I think you could argue he's a victim in a couple of ways. Of course, he does die in the books, but he also is falsely imprisoned for 13 years in Azkaban. Then you have the unicorns. You have Ginny, who, although she does not die, she is a victim. You have Buckbeak. Then you have Cedric. And the list goes on. And I just tend to think that the centaurs are aware of all of this in the grand scheme. And that's why they're able to be 
a little more blasé about individual people because they're like, listen, y'all, a lot of people are going to die. It's just the reality of it. So they're not as focused on the individual, which makes Mm -hmm. sense when you consider how their perspectives differ from wizards. Yeah. And what I really like about meeting all these centaurs is, you know, there's a clear difference between all three of them. Like when we meet Ronan, he shakes Hagrid's hand. So he seems like more of the diplomatic middle ground. Bane is definitely the tougher of the three. And then Ferenz is like the nice one. Um, Who even gets reprimanded for letting Harry ride on his back like a common mule, I think it's referred to as. So it's clear that you know, even amongst the centaurs, there's sort of this difference of opinion uh, that exists. Um, so I definitely wanted to mention that. And then I think, Laura, you referenced Hermione earlier. She definitely sets up her dislike of divination. Uh, she says, who says the centaurs are right? It sounds like fortune telling to me. And Professor McGonagall says, that's a very imprecise branch of magic. So we already have Hermione uh, being anti-divination before she even steps foot in a classroom. And <laughs> McGonagall being anti-Trelawney, I would argue. Yeah. yeah. As well. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we see McGonagall later in book three pretty openly question the validity of some of the divination claims that are coming out of that class. Yeah, because don't they go to transfiguration class after the first transfiguration yeah. or first uh, divination and and and... McGonagall's like, so which one are you be dying <laughs> today? Right. So just to wrap up this chapter, I had one more odd and end. Um, it was Harry overhearing Quirrell arguing with Voldemort. Uh, so essentially he was arguing with himself. And then um, Harry said he would have gambled 12, 12 sort. We need something for 12. Hello. Uh, Sorcerer's Stones that Snape had been the one arguing with Quirrell. Uh, and Michelle, you had a point here. Yeah, it was. it goes back to the point I made before where I think that the, a lot of what's going on with the trio and them being misunderstood and being punished for this thing that they were actually trying to do good and help Hagrid. And then they get into all of this trouble and then all of the students turn on them. Parallels, I think, what they're doing to Snape, where Snape is out actually trying to do good things, save Harry in the Quidditch match and watch over him and make sure that um, Quirrell doesn't get past Fluffy. And then they misunderstand him and think that he is responsible for all of the trouble. So it's just, it's a a bunch of misunderstandings, but I think they kind of mirror each other. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So let's jump into chapter 16 and we'll start with the seven word summary. And Michelle, oh, I hate to give you some pressure on your birthday, but. Do you though? Do you? (laughs) Oh, I love it. You're right. Called it's out. The Slytherin in me. Called out. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to kick things off. Are you ready? I'm ready. Voldemort is hiding behind Quirrell. Is that an apostrophe S or just? Yeah, it, yeah, Quirrells. Yeah, let's do that. Incompetence. Ooh. Keys. Keys? <laughs> I did say keys. I wanted to have one word in here that has to do with this chapter instead of the next chapter. <laughs> um, so I'm th- okay. I'm throwing keys there as like a hook to actually root it backwards because I think we got ahead of ourselves. It's I love that in. you can put a dash in there between incompetence and then keys, right? Just make it a separate little like whatever you and. guys yeah, decide like to incompetence do. Yeah. dot 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 
keys. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and M dash. Okay, very right. good. So let's go through the uh, the trap door here. Uh, but before we do that, uh, let's talk a little bit end of year exams. We get this at the start of the chapter. Uh, I'm sure we all recall what it was like uh, to finally have been done uh, with the school year. School's out for summer. Uh, you know, a lot of pressure is off, but not for the trio. Uh, you would think after exams were done, they could relax a little bit. They have a week until they get their results. But no, they're also in charge of saving the wizarding world. Exactly. But <laughs> for us, I feel like it was always this great feeling, right? Like when you would go in, you would take your tests and you would come home. You wouldn't have a full day of school, especially as you got older into middle school and high school, you would go in to take tests, at least for me. And then you could come home and it was great. And you would slowly inch your way closer to summer. Yeah. It was the best feeling in the world. The weather was warming up. You were thinking about not having to go to school. Just relax, spend more time with friends and family, maybe go to the beach. It was definitely my favorite time of year. Yeah. Once you got past the exams, right? Mm -hmm. I usually, I would get past exams and just collapse because I would be, I would be pulling all-nighters, like I would be staying up super late to try and study and, and get myself prepared so that all of the pressure and stress and preparation that came with exams, when I finally got past them, my body would just have no energy remaining. And I, I just ended up taking a lot of naps <laughs> after the fact. Laura, let's go to the beach. No. no, I need to recover from all my studying. Especially because after that, then you still have to wait for your grades. So, and then you oh, just can't yeah. handle that anxiety on top of what you just went through. So yes, just sleep, sleep yeah. till your grades come in. Hermione raises an interesting point, too, that I wanted to talk about. Uh, she says, after um, taking one of the exams, I needn't have learned about the 1637 Werewolf Code of Conduct or the <laughs> uprising of Elfric the Eager. And this reminded me of how often we look back on our school exams, maybe even classes we took, and we just were like, you know, we learned a lot of worthless information that is never going to serve us Um in our future endeavors. But of course, stay in school, kids, do your homework. This is not, you know, uh, us telling you not to do that. But, you know, as as adults looking back, we probably forgot more than we learned, right? That's fair to say. <laughs> or retained. Yeah. Mm. No, mm. I, I agree with that. Yeah. That's going through school, right? Even though you don't carry those lessons with you today, like I don't remember a thing about geometry, for example. Yeah. It instills some character in you and it, it helps you grow into the person that you are today and exposes you to a different variety of things. I'm thinking like sixth grade, we did life science uh, and I still have like old vocab sheets, but like really interesting phytoplankton, things that I just never thought about ever since. So to that uh, end, they're not very useful, but I can go back because I kept those pages where I'm like, oh, I'm going to learn about this today. <laughs> of course, we didn't have we didn't have Wikipedia then uh, like we do now. I, you know, I think we would all hope that the point is rather than you know, having students just sort of wrote, memorize things and be able to regurgitate them for the rest of their lives. Hopefully the point is the skills that you acquire along the way. So mm -hmm. you probably won't be able to remember a lot of the, you know, factual stuff that you learned when you were in school, but hopefully we all learned and acquired the skills to be able to attain that knowledge if we need it again in the future, right? Um, yeah. I think that's the ideal scenario. I don't know if that always happens, but. 
Yeah, um, I'm going to come in on the other side of this one because I don't think that there's anything I've ever learned that was not useful to me later. Mm -hmm. And even Mm -hmm. though I went actually pretty high in math class in school, um, this was, um, yeah, I won't even tell you when it was, Um, (laughs) but I went pretty high in math in school and I don't remember how to do trigonometry and geometry was never my friend, but the perseverance and determination and problem solving skills that I learned in that I very much carry to this day. And also in my work, I work as an interpreter. So my fund of knowledge has to be great. And I have to know all of these things. And if I go and I'm interpreting in a trigonometry class, I use that information or, you know, you just never know. And I think that there's nothing you ever learn in your life that you don't carry in some way. Even if I would never be able to sit down and pass a trigonometry exam in this moment, for sure. But I could give it a good old try and I'd probably get a pretty decent grade (laughs) because I have that determination and problem solving and the ability to get through a math problem. So I think all knowledge is good. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I think that's that's a great, that's a great take. I love that. Agreed. Agreed. Um, Well, Harry you know, he has to focus on his exams and worry about Voldemort. Uh, I'm wondering <laughs> if he should have gotten a pass on his exams in year one, given the additional mental stress he was dealing with. He literally has a dark lord inside of his head. Maybe, maybe not. What yes. do you feel like here? Well, in hindsight, yes, he should get a pass. But I think he ends up doing well on his exams anyway, right? He doesn't flunk out on he's his exams. He's a good them, student. So. Yeah, he's, he's a good student. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it's Voldemort helping him. <laughs> <laughs> Voldemort is like, I, my soul will not be attached to a bad student here. Um, it's the least I can do. <laughs> the answer is C. Don't they? Uh, don't they end up canceling exams across the board either in the next next book? year? Yeah. yeah. So I do think it's funny that if something happens that like widely impacts the school, they're like, okay, we're not gonna put these kids through that. But for this trio, they're like, eh. Y'all did good enough anyway, so we're just gonna go with it. Well, they did win the quid. They did win the house cup and got special award. So yeah, they were recognized. You know, so this is all worth it in the end. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> yes. So one of the really cool things that I think would have been fun to see in the movies is a scene uh, between Peeves and who he believes to be the Bloody Baron. Uh, and this is when the trio are headed to the trap door and they run into Peeves, who seems to know somebody is there somewhere, even though he can't see them. Uh, so, I, Andrew, you you are looking for me to play the role of the Bloody Baron here. I need somebody to play Peeves. I'll do Peeves. So here we go. I have not practiced this. Uh, um, All right. I'm director Chris Columbus. All right, kids. And action. Peeves. He said in a hoarse whisper. The Bloody Baron has his own reasons for being invisible. Peeves almost fell out of the air in shock. He caught himself in time and hovered about a foot off the stairs. So so sorry, your bloodiness, Mr. Baron, sir, he said greasily. My mistake, my mistake. I didn't see you. Uh, Of course I didn't. You're invisible. Uh, Forgive old Peeves his little jokes, sir. I have business here, Peeves, croaked Harry. Stay away from this place tonight. I will, sir. I most certainly will, said Peeves, rising up in the air again. Hope your business goes well, Baron. I'll not bother you. 
Man, that well is done. applause well done, all everybody. around, y'all. Jeez, that was so good. I think we should do an audiobook. It's so funny to think about what the Bloody Baron voice, what Harry's impression would it have been, uh, because he's 11 and his voice has not dropped oh, yeah. yet. He and probably cracks a like, few times. Peeps, <laughs> the Bloody Baron has it, you know, kind of like very high-pitched. And Peeps fell for it. It's interesting <laughs> Harry did it, because isn't the Ron, Ron the one who usually does impersonations? Yeah. Would, Meg actually pointed this out to me last night. Like, it would have been better to set Ron up as an impersonator, a vocal impersonator, given what Ron does in book seven with Pettigrew and also with um, Harry's partial tongue. Mm. So, Yeah, that's a really good, good point. Uh, so now we get to the trials. We're at the trap door. And I just wanted to call out, there's some really good write-ups out there that compare these seven trials to the seven Harry Potter books. And I know there's a an article on MuggleNet uh, that we're going to be referencing, so we can definitely include that uh, in the show notes. But the first of the trials that the trio come up against is Fluffy. Probably the one we've spent the most time on in terms of figuring out just how, in fact, we're going to get past this three-headed dog. But luckily, Hagrid sent um, Harry the pokey flute earlier in (laughs) uh, the the book, and uh, they don't have as much trouble with it, seemingly, as they do in the movie. But one of the things in the MuggleNet article that I found really interesting Um, when comparing this kind of first task to Sorcerer's Stone is that Fluffy is a literal manifestation of three heads are better than one. And that's exactly what the trio are. Uh, (laughs) Good old Irvin. I love Yeah, shout out to Irvin, who's been on the show. He wrote this article back in 2014, Seven Obstacles for Seven Books. Second trial is the Devil's Snare, which we learned was put in place by Professor Sprout, who funnily enough, we don't really meet uh, in this book at all. Uh, she is, you know, just referenced as being the head of Hufflepuff house. But where is she featured? Book two. Hmm. In book two. <laughs> Obstacle two. Yeah, exactly. See, See you, listener. Wow. Yeah. And uh, Eric, you mentioned this a couple of episodes ago. Uh, there's kind of a comical moment here when they're trying to get past the devil's snare. And Hermione, um, when, of course, it it's brought up, okay, Devil Snare hates light. Let's start a fire. Hermione's like, but there's no wood. And it's just such a, it's a comical moment. It's it's a classic. Um, I, I Do we want to look at this as like a book smarts versus street smarts or pressure of the situation type of moment? And, you know, Ron mm-hmm. just saying, you know, you're a witch. Use magic. You can create fire with your wand. Like, come on, Hermione. Yeah, and she's quite good at it. Uh, it's it's second nature for her to create those bluebell flames, but in under pressure, she kind of stutters a little bit. And in her whole lifetime, she's only been a witch for a very small part of it. So when yeah. she goes into panic mode, I mean, she probably just goes back to, oh, I have to build a fire. Yeah. 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 Well, and we see this with the troll, right? We talked about this in the Halloween chapter, too. She's so new to this that when the fight or flight instinct takes grip, She's not quite ready to react with all of this knowledge that she's acquired. She gets there, but she's not there yet. I think over the years, the fandom has joked about Hermione always having the right answer, always having the right solution or item. And maybe this is just a good reminder that she's not always perfect. And as we continue with chapter by chapter, I'm going to be looking out for these 
imperfect moments because I think too often we're like, Hermione just has the answer for everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say, as a Ron fan, I really hate how they did this in the movie. They made Ron out to be the one who panics. Oh. And then Harry and Hermione are a little bit um, dismissive of him, you know, saying, oh, well, it's a good thing Hermione doesn't panic. It's a good thing she pays yeah. attention. It's like that. Hello, <laughs> that is not what happened. Um, uh-huh. It's it's more. It's an early example of defamation of Ron's character, and I will not have it. <laughs> I respect that, Laura. <laughs> you tell him, Laura. I have a theory on that a little bit later on when we get to another one of the tasks as to why they made that change. But for now, uh, the third trial is the flying keys, and that was put in place by Professor Flitwick. And uh, Eric, you have a a good point here about. You know, this one, it, it really just tests Harry's flying skills uh, and and I, I would say, I guess, the ability to, you know, really hone in much like he does with the snitch uh, to find the key that has been previously captured. But uh, I agree with your point about the movie here. Yeah, it's, it's interesting in seeing which ways the movie has changed each of these tasks. I'm thinking back to the harp, for instance, in the book is not currently playing when they walk in and they have to play the flute in the movie the harp has been bewitched to keep playing so that they can have that huge jump scare when it's like is it quiet Mm -hmm. in here oh oh oh, we gotta go down you know kind of a thing similarly the flying keys now once harry touches his broom all the all the keys in the movie start darting at him and that makes the task of locating the correct key uh much 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 harder Whereas in the book, it really just seems like they all kind of stay gently fluttering. And the job is made easier by the fact that uh, someone has already grabbed the correct key. So at least we get to see Harry's thought process here. He says, you know, it would be bronze and a little rusted, just like the door. Um, That's really smart and a brilliant way that they would have solved it. They would have found it eventually. But there's a lot more immediacy once the keys are starting to attack. And I think of like charms, for instance, um, like Hermione's paper birds uh, really just being um, a clever way of showcasing that style of magic. So I, I, I do like the movieism where it's a lot more pressure and it's it shows like Harry's, again, like Quidditch abilities um, to have the keys be more of an active role in this challenge. Something that occurred to me here with this one, as we were thinking about how we compare each of these tasks to the books. You know, Fluffy is obviously the introduction. We spend the most time on Fluffy because it's the first task that the trio is aware of. Very clear representation of book one. Sprout creating the second challenge. There's a clear connection to book two. And in thinking about how could this connect to book three, the only thing that really jumped out at me was the keys. And the fact that Sirius has been a prisoner up until book three. And the key to me is representative of him getting out of Azkaban. Also, he gets a new broomstick. Yeah. (laughs) That he does. does. Mm -hmm. Irvin also, uh, he has some really interesting uh, thoughts here too. He said, much like um, the key in this uh, to get into the next room is hiding in plain sight. Uh, Peter Pettigrew Ooh. is the key to Prisoner of Azkaban, and he has been hiding in plain sight 
the entire time. Oh, I like that so much better. We're going to go with Irvin's thought. <laughs> no, I like yours. <laughs> I think it's all good. I think yeah, it's, it's all, all good. good. Mm-hmm. It's all good. Uh, there's, there's also the mention of how Harry is really the one to do this trial on his own. Uh, and so much uh, of Prisoner of Azkaban is Harry you know, learning defense against the dark arts and, and defeating the Dementors by himself. You know, he obviously has some assistance, but uh, ultimately it's up to him at the end of the day. And, and charms, right? The Fidelius charm is really the central part of, of Prisoner of Azkaban. Moving on to trial four, Wizard's Chess. Uh, McGonagall put this one into place. And I wanted to bring back the popular theory here that came from this trial. It, it never really came to fruition, but uh, it was out there for a long time that that Ron was going to sacrifice himself for Harry later on in the series because, in fact, he sacrifices himself in this chess match. I like that theory. It is worth noting that Rowling later said she thought about killing Ron, but it was after she wrote this. So we can't really connect those pieces there but i still do like the theory that it it was foreshadowing his death yeah i think something that we can connect though is if we're thinking about this as a representation of what was to come in goblet of fire harry and ron do have a falling out in that book and there's a significant portion of it where we don't see much of ron because he and harry aren't talking Uh, it's obviously very different context from ron sacrificing himself and being knocked out but that device does allow for Ron to be sidelined at this point in the tasks they're doing. So maybe that's a little connecting the threads we can do. It would obviously be a lot stronger if the author had decided to kill Ron. But, you know, she can't she can't have planned every little thing out from this early in the series. So I think we can sure. forgive that. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, and Goblet yeah. of Fire is just one big chess game. If we think yes. about it with everything that goes on <laughs> mm-hmm. with the different uh, Triwizard tasks, and obviously there's a lot happening behind the scenes as well. So uh, definitely a, a nice comparison there. Trial five is the troll. So we don't see this uh, in the films. This doesn't come up. Uh, maybe it would have been a little bit too repetitive to have a troll again for uh, yeah. Harry and Hermione mm-hmm. to defeat. And expensive and the pacing. <laughs> but but this is interesting in the sense that this is the only trial that doesn't really reset itself. Uh, the troll is knocked out. Yeah. I, I was thinking it's the only one with a real life creature in it that needs to be defeated. So for that reason, it's not going to reset itself. I mean, I, I think all of these defenses were really set up uh just for one attempted theft in one evening right like like maybe they do reset but it's like after a couple of days i don't think anybody was suspecting that two separate parties on the same night would be trying to breach the stone and from a writer perspective do you really need to make these kids fight a troll again that just seems redundant they already did it and all in in a way it's almost symbolic of their earlier battle with the troll Mm -hmm. so i was wondering does that then give a little bit of a hat tip that Quirrell is the one who is ultimately who they're going to encounter down the line. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but in terms of comparing it to Order of the Phoenix, we know Defense Against the Dark Arts is such a core component of that book, especially with Umbridge. Uh, so 
it ties in nicely that it's the Defense Against the Dark Arts professor who sets up this fifth task for them. Also, could we argue that the troll is representative of Umbridge? Umbridge. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps, yeah. We don't find out that he has special abilities with trolls until after this part. I don't think so. No. Yeah, so I don't know that I would have thought that that was a hat tip to, so I don't think we find that out till after. Yeah, I think that's a good call. It's one of those things that in retrospect, you learn about it and you're like, oh, that, yeah, it takes you all the way back to the Halloween chapter. Mm-hmm. And you're like, of course. All right. Well, the last obstacle or trial that we encounter um, before um, the very last chapter of the book is the potions. And this was cut or it wasn't cut. It wasn't filmed uh, you know, for the movie version of Sorcerer's Stone. And I'm wondering why we think this was left out, because to me, this one really shows Hermione's ability to shine through. And I think given that this wasn't included, Laura, maybe that's why she is the one to kind of take over the devil's snare um, task in the movie as opposed to Ron, uh, mm-hmm. because otherwise she doesn't really have a moment um, in any of these, uh, if you think about it, in the movie. Yeah, no, that's true, because Ron's moment to shine is the chess match. Exactly. Right? Like that was that was curated specifically for him in terms of the writing. But yeah, it, it could just be that because they limited how many tasks there actually were, they felt like they had to throw Hermione a bone. I genuinely like this challenge. Uh, and as much as I do love it for the reasons that Hermione states about the most accomplished witches and wizards don't have an ounce of logic, um, I'm equally convinced that it never would have played on film. It's really hard. It would basically be like watching Hermione do the grid system of solving a logic puzzle where she's like, let me get a parchment out, you know, and quill and check things off. It's just like dead air. You just would never be able to, you know, it's happening in her head. It's just there's no way that it would translate well to film. So it makes sense that they would cut it. And also... They just leave Ron behind. Hermione's like, is he? And Harry's just, he's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. And then they go into this room. This way, Hermione gets to have her speech about herself and Harry, it's going to be you and books and cleverness. All this while she's cradling Ron's unconscious corpse and then is able to, you know, kind of get back with him anyway. I guess I guess they just rightly assume that it was very neat and tidy to just have Hermione not actually leave Ron unconscious a few chambers back. So I can see why the change was made. Yeah, I can see why they left it out for time. And it's probably not the most exciting. Although I think that the flames coming up on each door could have been really exciting. And just watching them drink the potion and not knowing if she got it right for just a second uh, could be. But I don't know. This is the one that I wish that they had put in the movie. I don't know why, but I think this it was fun. I I picture it being very colorful. I wish that they had put it in the movie. Definitely. It it certainly speaks to Snape's importance too. And, you know, if we're aligning these with the books, Half-Blood Prince is all about Snape. So the sixth trial here being Snape's trial, I don't think is any coincidence. And certainly uh, Hermione's ability uh, to solve a riddle um, because the whole idea of who the Half-Blood Prince is, is one big riddle in a sense, I guess you could um, I don't know. We could probably can make comparisons to Tom Riddle here too. I'm, I'm sure, but well, plus Harry should take note of this handwriting. I know Hermione is the one that's actually reading the uh, the riddle. That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Harry would notice this handwriting if he spent any time on this puzzle. 
And what I love about this too, Micah, you you brought up the excellent point that the identity of the Half-Blood Prince is a big riddle. Who in book six came the closest to identifying the identity of the Half-Blood Prince? It was Hermione. And Harry yeah. dismissed her. So it, it's just an interesting parallel that we can draw between the books. I Kind of mm-hmm. like you, Michelle, I wish they had found a way to make this work in the movie. I agree the way it's written isn't probably cinematic enough for a climax of a movie. So I think they probably would have had to change it a fair bit to make it work. But I do think they could have made it work. Um, but I get it. It was already a very long movie and they were trying to limit those scenes feeling repetitive, I think, and sort of get to the final challenge, which we know comes in the next chapter. The real question is, do these flasks refill themselves or did Quirrell just take a sip? Because otherwise they would have been <laughs> That's a good question. They would have been really screwed because they I wouldn't know. have been able to get forward or back. They would have just been stuck there. Good question. I guess to be safe, you would just take a sip to reduce the potential impact, negative impact. Like if you're poisoned. That's yeah. a good point. Yep. It is funny though. There's like barely a swallow left for Harry to go forward. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I always wondered that too. If he just if he just took a sip and then all the rest of them are like this much, you know, like a lot of liquid, and then the one, and then I thought, well, couldn't they have just walked in and seen like this one only has half the liquid? It must be this one. <laughs> they didn't have to go through all of that. Or it's not, and he died. <laughs> Snape would have been smart enough to um, allow them to refill because otherwise, yeah, you walk in and there's two empty flasks, and you're not getting out of that uh, chamber anytime soon. I wonder how Dumbledore does it. Oh, Dumbledore just like walks through the fire himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's him right through. I also wondered, you know, this would have been really sinister if Quirrell like moved around the flasks so that whoever followed him ended up taking the wrong one. Oh, that would have been so smart. Wow. Cool. Well, that wraps up. Uh, oh, sorry. It doesn't wrap up. It wraps up the trials because we don't get to the last one, which is the Mirror of Erised until the next chapter, which is the last chapter of Sorcerer's Stone. And then one final thing here, Michelle, you had a quote. Yes. The the quote from Hermione at the end where she says, you know, books and cleverness, there's more important things, bravery and something else. I don't know. From the first time I read that, that bothered me because it doesn't seem to fit in with the rest of the book or the book shines a light on everybody's strengths. And here is Hermione saying, oh, my strengths are nothing. Your strengths are better. And I thought, I I don't know, that bothers me every time I read it. I don't know why J.K. Rowling had her downplaying her strengths. Hmm. Where Because in in actuality, if it hadn't been for all of their strengths, they would have never gotten through it all. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. I think she's just trying to kind of appease Harry. Psych him up. Yeah. Probably. Right. Yeah. But I mean, to your point, Michelle, I think, and we've talked about this on the show before, girls and women are often conditioned to downplay their talents and the importance of what they offer. So I can definitely see why reading this, especially from a character like Hermione, who is so self-assured in her intelligence, justifiably so, downplaying its importance in this very crucial moment where they would not have been able to move forward without her is disappointing. I can totally see that. It just makes me cringe every time. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Time for MVP of the week. I want to give it to Ron for sacrificing himself in order to get Harry and Hermione to the next step. And it was stoned to his head. Oh my gosh, that must have been brutal. I'm going to give it to Harry as the bloody Baron, just because I had to do his voice. Uh, No, but in all seriousness, if not for Harry's ability as the bloody Baron uh, to impersonate him, Peeves would have probably called Filch and uh, half the uh, school to show up and uh, they never would have gone through the trap door. So MVP to the bloody Baron, aka Harry. It's quick thinking on his part. I'm going to give mine to centaurs in their first introduction. Look, they're fun. They're enigmatic. Ronan, Bane, Ferenza. Ah, love it. And uh, specifically to Ferenz for just his practicality. He bucks tradition. And uh, I'm so glad that they're in this book, but also that they come back in such a huge way later. I got to give it to Hermione. Harry would have been stuck in Snape's potions chamber forever if it weren't for her um, and he would have they would have just been stuck waiting Harry would have been stuck waiting until you know Quirrell Mort came back through with the stone so gotta give it to Hermione he wouldn't have been able to do it without her and I'm going to give it to Neville I love Neville in these few chapters I think that it shows a lot of his character I think it shows a lot of integrity I think it shows him as a great friend I shows him as being very brave I love how they portray on Neville in these few chapters. We also do MVC, most valuable chapter here, though we haven't been doing it too often in chapter by chapter so far. And I was kind of hoping Michelle was going to be like, I'm going to give the most valuable chapter to the other minister. Yeah, it's five books from now, but I just love it that much. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I thought about it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care about the rules, (laughs) y'all. Give us the other minister movie, please. Yes. Uh, although I did like the point that your other guest made about it being kind of nice that they didn't put it in the movie. So it's still the way it is in the book for us. I thought that was that was a great point. Yeah, uh, Andy, I think that was who brought that up. Mm-hmm. So next week on MuggleCast, the final chapter, Sorcerer's Stone. And we'll just focus on that chapter and then we'll kind of wrap up our analysis of the book. And then a couple of weeks later, we'll move on to Chamber of Secrets. So, Wow. It's gone by fast. Wow. I know. If anybody has any feedback about today's episode or wants to submit any feedback about next week's chapter, pen an L and send it to MuggleCast at gmail.com or use the contact form on MuggleCast.com. You can also send a voice message. Just record it using the voice memo app on your phone and then email us that file. Or you can use our phone number, which is 192033Muggle. That's one nine two zero three six eight four four five three. And now it's time for Quizage. Last week's question, when McGonagall gives detentions to the trio and Neville in book one, she says she's never heard of such a thing before. What is the thing to which she is referring? Correct answer is, of course, four students out of bed in one night. You talked about that earlier. Hello, Marauders. And correct answers were submitted by people including... Boobatuber Puss, Buff Daddy, David's podcasting voice, Elizabeth K, 50 points each, Hermione plus T equals happiness, Mad-Eye is a Hufflepuff, Mage of Melbourne Avenue, Moody's Pegleg, Ravenclaw, Smarty Pants, Serious Black Lives Matter, The Medallion Thinks That's Stupid, and The Wild Witch of Yorkshire. Also, your local Irish leprechaun. 
one incorrect answer was submitted by Whiskey de Goat, uh, who suggested that McGonagall had never seen anything like Micah's smexy voice before. And that wasn't me. I didn't I didn't send that in. Thank you for the clarification. It's probably correct. It just there's nothing in the text to support it. Eh, right. I'd give it half points. I, okay. All right. And I wonder how Whiskey will feel after my Bloody Baron impression. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so here is next week's question. What does Voldemort tell Harry that he will do once he has the elixir of life? Submit your answer to us on the MuggleCast website, MuggleCast.com slash Quizich, or click on Quizich from the main nav. Apple Podcast users, for just $2.99 a month, you can now receive ad-free MuggleCast and early access to each new episode of the show right within the Apple Podcasts app. Just tap into MuggleCast and you'll see that subscribe button. If you're a patron, you already get these benefits, but maybe you don't want to support us through Patreon, you just want to do it through Apple Podcasts. There's your solution. So check that out. We really appreciate that support, patron support, just listening, using our advertisers. Everything helps. So thanks, everybody. And uh, speaking of supporting us, we'd appreciate a review within your podcast app if they have a review option there. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We're MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, while it still exists, and TikTok. Love the shade. Michelle, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Happy birthday. Yeah, you were great. It was so great having you on. And thank you again for joining us on your birthday. Thank you for making my birthday so special. Aw, the day is still young. So you got plenty of time to celebrate with the fam still. And so am I. Yeah. There you go. Indeed. And I just simply still love that you're like, I like that Hogwarts is a security nightmare for the kids. That means a lot coming from a parent. That really does. Honestly, I feel like we need to have a in defense of Hogwarts episode now and we need to have Michelle on. Yeah, I have a lot to say about that. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to add you to the security nightmare sound effect being like, I actually like it. I'm screaming security nightmare. And Michelle's like, I actually like it. Oh my God. Just send me the papers to sign and I'll sign it. <laughs> Thanks for your support on Patreon. We do appreciate your support very much. Thanks, everybody, for listening to today's episode. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. I'm Maura. And I'm Michelle. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Go vote. Happy election day. Yes.